Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, with a message titled, Jesus, God, and Savior. So let's turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. A great many Christians have been taught and trained to confess that Jesus is both fully human and fully God. That's right. You know, as God, he's co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. And if you've had any Bible training at all, you'll readily be able to quote those Bible verses that do proclaim Jesus as fully God. You'd no doubt immediately turn to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or you'd go to John 8.58, where Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Or Philippians 2, verse 6, which says, He was always in the form of God. Or Colossians 1.15, that he's the image of the invisible God. Or 2 Peter 1.1, which calls Jesus our God and Savior. But I think there's no chapter in the New Testament that is so thorough in its proclamation of the deity of Jesus than Hebrews 1. I mean, my goodness. Just look at the list of things that have been said about him. He's the heir of all things. He created all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of the divine nature. He's right now upholding and sustaining the universe. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He's worthy of worship, whereas angels are not. Indeed, the angelic hosts worship him. And then what follows next in this chapter are a series of quotations from the First Testament. We've already looked at five of the seven. He is the one begotten of the Father. He's the Son. The angels worship him. You, your God, has anointed you. Now, before we launch right in to the last section of chapter 1, that is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 to 14, let me make an observation. Most of the time when Christians argue for the deity of Jesus, they do so for the sake of apologetics. That is, they wish to defend their faith against secularists who argue there is no God. In response, Christians will often say, actually, that argument has already been settled. God stepped into the world in the form of a man. Or against aberrant religions like the Jehovah's Witnesses who actually argue that Jesus is the archangel Michael. Well, Hebrews 1 should end that discussion. No angel was ever called the Son. Or against other world religions that argue that Jesus was simply a great prophet. Do you hear what I'm saying? Many times when Christians learn passages about the deity of Christ, they do it for the sake of apologetics in order to defend their faith. But that's not the primary reason we're told about Jesus' deity. We're told of it so that we might join the angels and worship him. We're told of it so that when the day of trouble comes, when we're being persecuted or when any form of suffering comes our way, when we're tempted to despair, we're to ask ourselves the question, why do we fear? I mean, who rules? Our enemies? Our circumstances? How about human governments? Random chance events? You see, the doctrine of the deity of Christ is meant to comfort the troubled soul, a soul filled with concerns and anxieties and pain and suffering. Who rules? Jesus does. We've come to the end of chapter 1. It's a glorious chapter written to people who are afraid. Perhaps some of them said we should abandon the Christian faith and revert to our former Judaism. Perhaps that would keep us safe. But of course, safety doesn't consist in running and hiding. So we're going to look at the last two of the seven quotations from the First Testament. And before we do, let's remember what's been said. 
The fifth First Testament quotation, that was found in Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. See, the Son is God. His throne is forever. His throne is one of absolute power. But unlike earthly kings that have absolute power, the throne of the Son is not a corrupt one. Indeed, he loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. And furthermore, God the Father has anointed him with the oil of gladness. So what does that mean? It means that when King Jesus rules, when he does what he pleases, and he knows what he pleases is perfectly righteous, the application of his rule fills him with joy. See, the rule of Jesus is not a burden to him. He doesn't begrudgingly rule. He's delighted to rule. He's filled with happiness. His face is bright with joy. And because of that, we should know that when we call upon our king to act on behalf of his people, we're calling on him who's delighted to act on behalf of his people. He's motivated out of his desire for righteousness, to be sure, but he's also motivated out of his desire for joy. Oh, very well. Let's move to the sixth quotation from the First Testament, and here I'm reading Hebrews 1, 10 to 12. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. See, that's a quote that comes to us from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. You know, as is almost always the case, whenever the First Testament is quoted, it's assumed that the reader, the person reading this quote, knows the context. And so, for our purposes, let's remind ourselves of the context. Psalm 102 begins with a heading. It says, The prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. And so, from that heading, we're immediately told that this is a song of a man who's suffering. He's praying for help. So let's look at the first two verses, Psalm 102, 1-2. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear, answer me speedily in the day when I call. So the person who writes this psalm is in great trouble, and, he, and he's in an extreme situation. And we get the explanation of that in verses 3-8. to eight. For my days pass away like smoke, my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I'm like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day, my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. See, that's extreme. This man's enemies show no mercy at all. And all the while, his life is flying away. His days pass away like smoke. He's considering not only his vulnerability, his mortality. Well, that's the first section of this psalm. But then comes the next section. And then, instead of continuing to dwell on his troubles and meditating on his mortality, he starts meditating on God. Verse 12, But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. See, what a contrast between the feeble nature of humanity and the eternal nature of God. Now, we might think it would end here. We're a shadow, God's eternal. And that is true, but that's not the end of the psalm. Verse 13, you will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. That is, God will remember his promises and he will remember his city. He'll remember his chosen people. 
The psalmist knows that he will not be left in anguish. The day of his deliverance will come. That's what Psalm 17 says. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. And that's a promise. And that's the cause of the psalmist's hope. God won't despise me. God will remember me. My end will not be a whimper. Rather, it will be in God. And so let's skip ahead to the verses that were quoted in the book of Hebrews, Psalm 102, 25 to 27. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Now here's a question. Is the writer of Hebrews correct when he applies these words to Jesus? Yes, he is. He's already made the point in this chapter that Jesus is the creator and he's the sustainer of the universe. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's already made the point that the First Testament calls Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And when Jesus rose from the dead, that resurrection was the Father's coronation of his Son. He's already shown us that the angels worship the Son as fully God and fully equal with the Father. And hence, it all follows that there are only two categories of things. One is the category of things that wear out. These are the things that perish with time. The other category is the category of things that never wear out. These things are eternal and unchanging. So to which category belongs the Son? Answer, he's the eternal unchanging one. That's the key. So let's get back to the things that are perishable. How about the threat of Caesar Nero and his reign of terror, which he would soon unleash against Christians? Yeah, that Nero is going to wear out. Ah, but we might protest, well, look, I'm, I'm perishable too. If Nero unleashes his cruelty on Christians, yeah, Christ our Lord is eternal and unchanging, but I may well be taken unto death. Isn't that right? So is there comfort to be found? Oh, yes, indeed, there is. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to cover Canada with the gospel and share God's message across all demographic groups. But fulfilling the mandate of this Bible teaching ministry requires a team effort. The ministry fiscal year end is upon us and will conclude on June 30th. This year we have a faith goal to raise $325,000 by month's end to bring the ministry budget year to a successful close. We're praying for our listeners and partners across the country to join us in reaching this goal. For your consideration this month, ministry friends have come together pledging to match your donation dollar for dollar up to $100,000. So every dollar given will be matched. Your grace will be met with grace. To give today and maximize the impact of your gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It's not just that Christians face trouble. Disease and death, suffering and tragedy await all of us. While there are a few favored people who seem to live trouble-free lives, we can know this with certainty. Every Christian will experience hardship. Hebrews will tell us that later in chapter 12. But in this passage, we've just been told that the one who never wears out, the one who is unchangeable, is also the one who loves righteousness and hates wickedness. That is changeless. And that means 
that it will always give delight to King Jesus, the one who is truly God, to work on behalf of his people. And on that note, one of the great verses that stresses the changelessness of God, that's Malachi 3, verse 6. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Yeah, it might be true that a God who changes would also change his mind regarding the promises that he made. But the one who never changes, the eternal one, will never forget his promises. It's more than that he won't, it's he can't. For if he forgets his chosen ones, he also changes and wears out. But the eternal one can't do that. And that brings me back to what I've said earlier. To argue that Jesus is divine is to argue that the safest place to be is in the center of his eternal promises. For as we've already read in this text, he has, through his blood, made purification for our sins, and they are not remembered. God is for us. Who can be against us? Think of Isaiah 51, verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. See, take it to heart. Don't be discouraged. When things are black and overwhelmingly torturous and the path you've been called to walk is wearisome and no end is in sight, remember this. Even this trouble will one day wear out, but Jesus, the eternal Son of God, will not wear out. Some of you might remember that wonderful song that was written by by Henry F. Light. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. And then later on in the next verse, he writes, change and decay and all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. Jesus is the one who doesn't change and he's given you a promise he can't relinquish. He will abide with you. He'll rescue you from every evil way and safely deliver you into his eternal kingdom. Believe it. Now, there's one more quote from the First Testament found in Hebrews chapter 1, that seventh quotation that's in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Hebrews now returns to the matter of the angels. You know, the author has been making the point that Jesus is greater than the angels, and consequently, the declaration of the gospel of Jesus is greater than the revelation of the law that was delivered by angels. For God entrusted his law to angels, but he would never entrust his gospel to angels. No, no, something that precious could only be entrusted to his only son. And that's been the point in all this discussion of the angels. But with that in mind, the writer of Hebrews says that no angel was ever told by God the Father that this angel should sit at his right hand until all his enemies should be made a footstool for the feet of the one who sits at his right hand. Now, this quote in Hebrews comes from Psalm 110, verse 1. And then following verse 1 in verse 2 of that psalm, it says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And so this psalm, which is an Old Testament messianic psalm, from this psalm we get a picture. God will install his Messiah in Jerusalem. And when he does, he's going to be surrounded by enemies. They'll be everywhere. But the Messiah will prove stronger than the enemies. The Messiah will begin his rule surrounded by enemies, and he will rule in the presence of these foes. So let's go back to verse 1, which I have quoted. In order to make the Messiah's rule secure, he's told to take his seat at the right hand of the Father. So there's an image here that's easily lost on modern-day readers. But we need to know about it. 
So in order to reinforce this, let's go back to Hebrews 1 verse 3. That passage said that after the Messiah had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Notice again, the emphasis is upon the Messiah sitting down. Now that's an image that ancients understood perfectly. You see, ancient kings would sit on their throne while their vassals and their servants, their counselors, and any other person that summoned to the throne room would be required to stand. The king sat, everybody else stood. If enemies were brought before the king, they also would stand. Standing indicated an inferior status. Sitting was reserved only for the one who had ultimate power. So think of it this way. When a king sits, he's so different from everyone else. Everyone else has to exert energy to get things accomplished. The king needs only to sit, and then he says a word. Such is his authority. That's what's meant by sitting. Now, that's an image we find also in the book of Revelation in chapter 7. It's an amazing scene. One is seated on the throne, and around the throne standing is a great multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language. They're inferior. The one on the throne is absolute power. So in Psalm 110, we're told that the Messiah will not stand at the right hand of the Father as one would expect a counselor to do. Rather, he's told to sit down and take the place of absolute authority. Now, keep that image in mind. Now, from that, notice that the son sits at the father's right hand, and he continues to sit, not rising, until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. The image is one on the throne, has not risen. The enemies fall before his throne, and he's placed his feet on their throats. His victory is absolute. It's complete. It's hard for me to read this and not think of a very similar passage. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 26. It says, Then comes the end when he, that is the Son, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what Christ is doing right now. Think of what he's already defeated. He's defeated the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He's defeated sin's power. He's defeated Satan for on the cross. He crushed the evil one and made a public spectacle of him triumphing over him. Jesus has defeated death in his resurrection. He's torn down the wall that kept us from the Father. Later in this book, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the veil in the temple is torn. And now we have boldness to approach the throne of grace. The barrier between God and us has been defeated. That's but the beginning. The day will yet come when every earthly power will be laid below Christ's feet. All the earth's kings, emperors, presidents, chancellors, prime ministers will all be placed under the feet of him who rules forever and ever. That's what it means to believe in the deity of Jesus. It's to be given the assurance that the enemy of our souls may rage against us and inflict vengeance upon us in this hour, in this changeable, temporary, decaying world. But there is one seated on a throne who will place all his enemies under his feet. And with that, we come to the last verse of chapter 1. What a glorious chapter it's been written to fearing Jewish Christians who felt vulnerable and exposed because of their faith in Christ, it's now clear that they're not thinking clearly at all. Why would they ever consider going back to Judaism when such a treasure was not offered to them there? So we read Hebrews 1.14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, clearly, we've gone back to the discussion of angels. 
and without a comparison to the giving of the law, to the giving of the gospel of Jesus. From the throne of God, from the place of honor and ultimate authority, commands are given to angels. And here, rather than talking about angels giving the law, we're talking about angels who are commanded by Christ himself to serve those who are Christ's people. I hope you see it. When a Jewish believer comes to Christ, he or she hasn't given up on angels or on the glory that they minister. Indeed, Christ, the Lord of all, the great divine Son of God, now commands his angels to serve the followers of Christ. Now, how's that done? Well, in the First Testament, angels not only superintended the giving of the law, they at times delivered messages from God. At other times, they intervened on behalf of God's people. I mean, I think of Elisha in 2 Kings 6. He was under siege. God sent an army of angels and chariots to surround him, and the enemies faded away. Will God do less for his children today? Is Jesus short of angels to command concerning your case? And so I come once more to the doctrine of the deity of Jesus. Jesus fully man, but also fully God. He who you worship as God has made you his own. If you desert him, you've deserted him who never fades, never perishes, never changes, and never stops caring for you. You have a great salvation, one that will never pass away. Root yourself in that which is eternal and gladly abandon that which is but for a moment. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, do you think we spend enough time uh, teaching or even understanding who Jesus is, his, his deity, his sacrifice, and the necessity of what he's done? Yeah, I mean, there are some basic Christian words that we need, or Christian doctrines, I should say, Ben, that we need to come to terms with. Uh, the two natures of Christ. Sometimes, you know, technically that's been called the hypostatic union. That is, there is a union between Christ's divine nature and his human nature. How does that work? We should know that. Uh, we should also know that on the divine side, that Christ has always existed in the form of God, and that on the human side, that he experienced humanity fully, even as we do. And then we should also know of all the doctrines of what Christ accomplished. What does it mean when he brought in the kingdom of God? Uh, what does it mean when uh, he died on the cross? What is our salvation on what is it based? I mean, see, all of these things, Ben, are doctrines, but they're realities as well, and they need to be incorporated into our lives. And rather than simply having a jumbled sense of the thing, it should be articulated and clear. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada exists to bring you into a transformative relationship with Jesus. And we're so encouraged to hear just how this is happening for those who listen to Dr. John's daily Bible teaching program. Kaylee recently shared, I am thankful for the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ written in God's holy word, taught by Dr. John Newfeld. The word is clearly taught and my walk with the Lord is deepened in him as I listen. If you felt the impact of this ministry, we'd love to hear from you. Also, if this ministry impacted your walk with Jesus, please consider supporting the ministry this month by participating in our Match Campaign. In June, every dollar you give will be matched by another dollar up to $100,000, in essence, doubling the impact 
of your donation. To do so, just give us a call today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.